Today's scripture is from Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked. How did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Peace be with you. That's a strange parable, isn't it? If you're visiting with us, my name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to thank you for joining us. Uh, since the beginning of the year, we've been looking at the parables of Jesus. And so we spent about a month looking at parables of money, what Jesus had to say about money. We spent another month looking at parables about the kingdom. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at parables of judgment. And of course, it seems like this happens every year. Parables of judgment always lines up with Baby Dedication Sunday. So uh, we're just going to roll with it. And I, I want to, you know, before we get into the text, I just want to acknowledge that this is a hard topic, and it's a topic that many people would wish to avoid, not think about, or just, you know, it, it grates against our sensibilities in a sense. Like we, it's like fingers on a chalkboard, talks of judgment and wrath and hell. We just, we don't really like it. So why are we doing it? And the first and most important answer is because Jesus talked about judgment all of the time. When you open up the gospels and read the words of Christ, he was always talking about judgment. So that's the first. The second that goes along with it is because we have to. And what I mean is if we neglect the unpleasant doctrines of the faith, it can actually bring really unintended but really negative consequences to our understanding of God and the Christian life. You know, in the early 1900s, uh, people almost, no, they actually, they completely eradicated wolves from Yellowstone National Park because people didn't like wolves. They didn't like their teeth. They didn't like that their wolves were eating their livestock. And so they said, let's just get rid of these nasty wolves. Now, what happened was, they noticed over the years is that the park really began to change with no wolves the elk population soared. The elk weren't as healthy. They started to overgraze. 
the tree population in the park plummeted. When the tree population plummeted, the bird population plummeted. When the bird population plummeted, that meant seeds weren't being spread around the park nearly as much, which meant bushes and plants weren't growing. Erosion started to occur by riverbanks, coyote population soared. The park was going downhill. Uh, the, you know, the coyotes, they, they would eat the rodents. Uh, that's typically what they feed on. And so things like Eagles and osprey, which once were all over the park, they started to disappear. And so ecologists, biologists, they looked at it. They said, we've got to do something. And so in 1995, they said, let's bring the wolves back. And they reintroduced wolves to the park. And things started getting better almost immediately. The elk, because they had to start running again. They couldn't just lay around all day. <laughs> they got faster and healthier. Uh, trees started growing again because the overgrazing stopped. Some of the reports were trees were going five times as tall as they were previously. The bird population was up. The coyote population was down. Bear population was up because they would steal the wolves' kills. All sorts of things. And one of the lessons that, that ecologists have learned, especially in the last hundred years, is that when you remove a predator from an ecosystem, you'll upset the natural balance that's needed for flourishing. And in the same way, I would argue there is an ecological balance of sorts in the Bible that must not be disrupted. And if you take out the unpleasant passages, all the passages like this one that have some teeth in them, you end up with something that's very sentimental, but it's not actually comforting. It doesn't bring any real stability or security to your life. If you get rid of things like judgment, wrath, sin, and hell, you lose any meaningful sense of words like mercy or grace or justification or love. They go together. So we're going to press into this strange, somewhat violent parable of Jesus and say, Jesus, what are you trying to teach us here? And I want to look at it under three headings, this text. One, I want to talk about the, the Feast of Joy. Two, I want to talk about the fire of judgment. And then lastly, I want to finish up by talking about the lesson of the fool. What do we learn from the little epilogue in the text? So the feast, the fire, and the fool. Starting with the feast, because this passage is strange and because there's this violence in it that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us on first reading, it's really easy to overlook the context. But to overlook the context is to miss something huge. Verse 2, Jesus, he's speaking in parables, and he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. So Jesus would go around a lot and say, The kingdom of heaven, if you want to know what I'm about, what my kingdom's about, he would say, It is like, maybe it's like a mustard seed, or like a little bit of leaven, or like a field. He uses a lot of different images. But the, Jesus' most favorite image to describe his kingdom, and really his kingdom when it comes in its fullness, the metaphor he goes to again and again and again is a feast. She says, you want to know what my kingdom's like? Imagine a king whose one and only son is getting married. And this king's a good king, and he likes to party. And so his one and only son's getting married. He's going to use everything at his disposal to make this party epic, right? He's not going to serve typical banquet fare, overcooked chicken breast covered in sodium-infused gelatinous sauce that all kind of tastes the same. No, he's going to scour his 
Bielt and his wine cellar, he's going to scour the kingdom for the best delicacies, for everything, to make this the most incredible party ever. She says, when you think about that, you're, you're getting just kind of a glimpse into why I'm here and what I'm up to. I've come to throw a feast. And if you were like me, you grew up, and that's not something you heard very often in the church. A lot of churches don't really talk about that kind of feasting. You know, the church was like, you, you believe these things, you do these things, you go to heaven, which will be good. But if you do all these other things, it'll be hell. Jesus has come to, you know, kind of just be the judge. And we lose out on the fact that Jesus, the reason he came was to invite us to a feast. That's why he came. You know, the first miracle Jesus ever performed wasn't healing the sick, wasn't feeding the hungry, and it wasn't raising the dead. God comes to earth, and he sees the state our earth's in, and he says, what's my first miracle going to be? Well, he's at this wedding feast, ironically, and they run out of wine. And you know, wedding feasts back in that day, they would last three or four days. So they run out of wine. The party seems like it's going to be over. And Jesus, he turns water into wine, and it's the best wine anyone's ever tasted. And he said, no, the real party's just begun because I'm here. Could you imagine if Jesus did that in our day? He came with his miraculous powers. He would get absolutely roasted on social media. He would get crucified by the press, would he not? Like, look at this earth. Jesus, are you kidding me? You've got supernatural powers. Look at all the evil and the darkness. Look at all the bad stuff. Look at the people who are hungry and the people who are sick. And you're here turning a miserable party into a magnificent one? That's what you use your supernatural powers for? I mean, Christians would be lecturing him. That is bad stewardship, Jesus. What are you doing? Well, the New Testament authors... They help us understand this because they never refer to Jesus' miracles simply as miracles. They always refer to Jesus' miracles as signs. What this teaches us is that the miracles of Jesus were not just raw displays of Jesus' supernatural power, like look at all I can do because I'm super powerful. They were actually signs pointing. They signify, they symbolized who he was and what he was about, and why he came to this earth. And the first sign he ever performed was turning a dying party into a legendary one that everyone would be talking about for the rest of their lives. You know, a common understanding of Christianity is obey the rules, stay in line, sit up straight, wash behind your ears, don't smile too much, don't laugh too much, don't have too much joy. And what we see from Jesus is, no, in this first miracle, even in this parable, before we get to the hard truths, is the glorious truth that Jesus comes and he says, I am the Lord of the feast. And I've come so that you might feast. Think about the greatest feast you've ever been, a, been part of, you've ever taken part in. I don't know if I can think of, I've, I've been in some pretty awesome feasts in my life. I like to feast if you can't tell. Uh, the last one I remember, my, my friend and fellow pastor, Brian, we went to Kansas City to uh, meet with a church out there. And before we left, one of our members here gave us a huge gift card and said, you're going to Kansas City. 
I want you to eat the best Kansas City steak you can find. And because he was older, we wanted to honor our elders. And so (laughs) we actually spent three days searching around. And we had about a seven-course meal. And I mean, we had things like from the sea, from land, from the air, everything. It was it was absolutely amazing. And we'll talk about it the rest of our lives. But think about the last great feast you've ever been a part of. A feast is more than good food. A feast, it is good food, but it's more than it's laughter, it's joy, it's warmth, it's a deep sense of belonging. I mean, a good feast has the power for for a moment, not just to banish hunger, but to banish sadness, to banish pain. And Jesus Christ has come and he says, I'm going to throw a feast which will banish hunger, sadness, pain, suffering, and misery once and for all. That's why I have come. It's going to be the feast to end all feasts. Revelation tells us about it. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about it in chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. Isaiah continues and he says, as he's making this feast, he's going to destroy the shroud of death that hangs over us, this sense that everything's going to die and fall apart. He's going to get rid of that. He's going to wipe away our tears and he's going to rid us of our disgrace. And we're going to sit down and we're going to have a meal. If we're going to understand this parable or any of the parables of judgment, if we're going to understand the mission of Jesus, we must begin by seeing that the world has been summoned to a party, a feast to end all feasts at the table of the Lamb, and God, Lamb of God, and judgment is pronounced into whether you receive that invitation or you reject that invitation. It's going to be a feast of joy. Now, as you understand that, Then you're able to move in to the section about the fire. I mean, the parable's kind of jarring, is it not? Any of you reading it thinking, what in the world? I was talking with people this week. What are you preaching on this parable? I don't know if I remember that one. What's it about? And I tell them, and they'd be like, no, I don't remember that parable. Because it seems a little strange. I mean, in one verse, the king's making this incredible feast, and then a couple verses later, he's destroying people and setting their city on fire. And you're thinking, what? What is going on? And, and for some of you, you're like, that's what I don't, that's what I, that's, that, that's just what keeps me from Christianity. God seems kind of like volatile. And one minute it's like all about the feast. And then the next thing you know, there's this big fire and there's destruction. And to be really clear, Jesus is talking about hell there. Like those were his two go-to metaphors for hell, fire and destruction. And so it's a bit confusing and you ask, like, what, what's happening here? How did these people outside the feast end up in the fire? That's a really important question. But the answer is actually not that all, all that complicated. How did those outside the feast end up outside the feast? What's Jesus tell us? How did they end up outside the feast? They chose not to go. They were given an invitation and they turned it down. Verse three, the king 
he sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet. So he'd already announced that he's having this banquet. He sent his servants to those who'd been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. More literal translation is they did not want to come. I mean, that's a bit of a head-scratcher, isn't it? The most epic feast anyone will ever take a part of and they yawn at it? I don't think so. You gotta remember, it's 2,000 years ago. It's not like they had iPads and streaming, like I wanna watch Netflix, I gotta, I'm binging this show and I gotta finish tonight. Like they played with sticks and rocks and things like that. Like they, <laughs> the king's throwing a feast for his one and only son. Who's, who yawns at that? Who says, I don't know, that doesn't seem all that interesting to me. Well, when the king gets word, that the people aren't coming, he sends his servants back. And he says, what do you mean? No, no, go go tell them that that it's ready. The food's starting to get cold. Tell them to get to the feast. And here, we understand not just that they they chose not to come, we get a window into why. Because when the servants go back and say, come to the feast, we're told that the people, they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. You read that and you think, okay, something's off in this kingdom. You know, I've been invited to parties that I didn't really want to go to before. But like, I've never, never responded in violence for getting that invitation. So what's going on? Well, there's, there's two types of people who end up outside the feast here. The first group are the indifferent there are people who are like, ah, Feast of the King. I don't know, it sounds interesting, but I've been doing this landscaping project and I want to get back to it. Or I got some stuff to finish up at the office. The second group, they're hostile, openly hostile. And here's where we get a little more window into what's wrong in the kingdom. Who's going to kill the king's servants? Torture and kill the king's servants? People who despise the king. So you have people who, they're indifferent, and you have people who are hostile. And as it is in, was in that day, so it is in our day, some people are indifferent to the word of God and the call of God. Some people are hostile to it. But at the bottom, both groups, what they have in common is they both refuse to acknowledge the king as king. They both refuse to give the king his due. The hostile crew was openly defiant, but the indifferent people, they were defiant nonetheless. I mean, he's the king. When the king summons you to his son's wedding feast, you don't say, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we don't live in a monarchy, so we don't, we don't totally get this. And we live, you know, half of you hate our president, half of you love our president. But imagine, you know, 20 years ago, if the president invited you and said, I really want you to come celebrate you know, my child's wedding. 20 years ago, we would all say, oh yeah, you don't turn that down. You just do it. You just go. Unless you say, you know what? Not my president or in this parable, not my king. And if there's a God who created the universe and they, he filled it with trillions of galaxies and each galaxy is filled with billions of stars and he upholds it all by the word of his power, by his pinky. He created all of that. When God puts a call in your life and says, come to the feast, you don't yawn 
and you don't say, I got some other things I got to take care of first. You don't say, that's kind of interesting. And yet, in my experience, I've shared the gospel with a lot of people in my life, and I can't tell you how many times people responded, that sounds great, and someday I might get around to it. Like right now, I've got a good thing going on, and I kind of want to keep this going. But if I get really sick and I know I'm going to die soon, then maybe I'll go back to exploring this. Jesus is saying, you can't treat the king that way. When the king, and this is true for believers in the room, when the king puts a call on your life, you don't say, ah, I'll get around to that eventually. I mean, he's the king. And you respond. Here's what I want you to see. What kept these people outside the feast, it wasn't their bad deeds. It was their pride. It wasn't their bad deeds. It was their unwillingness to humble themselves before the king. Christianity does not teach that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Christianity teaches that people who humble themselves under the king's authority get into the feast, and people who don't will eventually and inevitably face judgment. Verse 7, Jesus tells us, that as the people had tortured and murdered his servants, that the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now that's intense language, but I want you to think about this. If God created everything, and he did, and part of his creation continues to rebel repeatedly and do violence against him and what he created, what else is he going to do? Like, is he going to tolerate it forever? How many servants will the king let get murdered? How much rejection will he put up with before he finally says, okay, your will be done? You know, what's shocking in this parable, it's, it's not the judgment to me, it's the, the king's patience. Because the king is not volatile, short-tempered. He doesn't fly off the handle at the first act of rebellion. You know, after the first wave of rejections, what's the king do? He doesn't say, go cut them all down. The king says, what? They don't want to come? He tells his servants, essentially, hey, maybe they don't understand what's on the menu. Go tell them about the menu. And so, verse 4, tell those who've been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, I don't know if oxen tastes good, but the fatted calf sounds really good to me. It says, these are ready. Everything's ready. Come to the banquet. Like God's first response to our sin, rebellion, and rejection of him is not to wipe us out, but to seek us out. In the garden, after our first parents ate the fruit that God explicitly forbade them from eating, he didn't strike him down with judgment or fire. He didn't come and say, I'm going to get you. He came and said, where are you? Why are you hiding? Who told you you were naked? Like God's first response to sin is not to wipe us out, it's to seek us out. And that's the story of the Bible. And that's what this whole thing's about. If God's first response to sin was judgment, we'd have one page. God created, we sinned, the end. You know, fire came in the end. Instead, God shows incredible, tremendous patience 
throughout history, longing and wooing and warning and calling people. He has incredible patience. What Jesus is telling us, Jesus, what he is telling us in this parable is that the Lord's patience is incredible, but it's not infinite. He is willing to be incredibly patient. He is not infinitely patient. Repeated rejection, rebellion will face judgment. It just makes sense. God created this world and all of the people in it. Those people refuse to honor him as creator. Instead of wiping us out, he's persistently sought us out. He sent prophet after prophet that have been rejected, mistreated, murdered. And then he said, you know what? I'll send my son. Maybe they'll listen to him. He performed wondrous miracles and a weird coalition of really, really religious people and the Roman government came together and said, let's put this guy to death and they murdered him. If he's done all of that, what else can he do? What else should he do? Should he tolerate rejection and rebellion forever? To say, I can't believe in a loving God who would send people to hell. Can you believe in a God who just tolerates evil forever? Really? C.S. Lewis, he said this, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs? To give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. Paul tells us in the book of Romans that one of the absolute worst forms of God's wrath is handing people over to their sinful desires. One of the worst things God can do is say, okay, do whatever you want, but you're going to face the unfiltered and undiluted consequences of your actions. And so I say all that because I want to be abundantly clear with you. If you sense the call of God in your life, the leading of God in your life, don't harden your heart. Don't push it down and don't ignore it. Like the king, <laughs> the king of the universe, the Lord of the feast is summoning you to the party. And if you repeatedly harden you, your heart, eventually says, okay, have it your way. If you're feeling conviction, you're feeling weight, press into that as a gift from a God who pursues, who wants you at the feast. Fire, the feast, lastly, the fool. You get to the city on fire and these people being destroyed and you think, that was interesting. And then you find out, wait, the parable's not over? There's this whole epilogue. And it's a strange epilogue, first reading, because the guy, he gets tied up and thrown into the outer darkness because he didn't like wear a tie to the wedding or something when you first read it. What is this? Why did this guy get kicked out of the feast? I mean, it seems, again, on first reading, the Lord's, all he wants is everyone to come to the feast and then one guy shows up and he's like, not you, I don't like what you're wearing. What's going on here? Well, to understand the, the epilogue, you need to be able to hold two truths together at the same time. That's hard for us as a country to do anymore but let's try to hold two truths together at once. The first truth is that for the feast, you can come as you are. The first truth 
You can come as you are. The staggering claim of Christianity, the staggering claim of this parable is that you can enter the feast and you can come to it just as you are. Verses 8 through 10, the king, when the other people reject, the king says to his servants, go to the street corners. That was really like the, the main square. It was the, the thoroughfare where everyone would gather. He says, go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Who are you going to find at the main thoroughfare in a city? Well, you're going to find some rich people. You're going to find some beggars. You're going to find some immigrants and some foreigners and some outsiders. You're going to find some prostitutes. And the king says, I don't care who they are. I mean, teaches us something about the heart of God. He's bound and determined to have the feast. He says, just invite whoever will come. We're going to have a feast. We're told that the servants went out into the streets. They gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests, good and bad. The king is indiscriminate in his grace. He's saying, I'm having a feast and I want everyone to come and you can come as you are. And the Bible is so abundantly clear about this. We all have sin in our lives. We all have skeletons in our closet. We all have shame that we carry around for things that we've done, for things that have been done to us. We've all got baggage, amen? No, I've got baggage. I know you guys have baggage because I counsel you. And some of you guys, you've got carry-on, you know, baggage. Some of you had to get a self-storage space to put it all there. Like, we all have our stuff. And what this parable is teaching us is you don't got to deal with all that before you come to him. You don't got to deal with it alone. You come as you are. You come good or bad. You respond to the invitation. So you come as you are. That's the first truth. The second truth, though, is you can't come on your own terms. You can come as you are, but you can't come on your own terms. Verse 11, when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. That's important to remember. The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, presumably so that he doesn't try to come and crash the party later. Tie him up, and then he says, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This epilogue's really bothered people over the years. They've really struggled with it. Why does the king throw this guy out? And the, the key is the man was speechless when the king asked, where are your wedding clothes? The man didn't say, I didn't have time to go home and change. And he didn't say, I don't have any wedding clothes. The king says, why aren't you wearing the clothes? And the man doesn't have an excuse. And the reason he doesn't have an excuse, well, think about it. Everyone who entered into the feast from the streets came straight from the streets. I mean, the whole parable, the king's like, the food's ready and it's getting cold. It's ready. Come, send the servants out. Bring them right away. Poor people wouldn't have wedding clothes. Even people who did have wedding clothes wouldn't have had time to go home and change, and yet only one guest was kicked out of the wedding feast. Why? What gives? The only satisfying answer is that the king, at his own expense, must have provided the clothes for the guests to wear. It's the only satisfying answer. I want you to come to my son's wedding. I know you all are poor. You don't, you don't even have the clothes, right clothes to wear. You, Some of you are from out of town. You're not going to have it. Just come, I've got the clothes. All you got to do is put on the clothes that I've given you. 
all you got to do is accept the covering that I'm offering. I know you're wearing clothes that are kind of like rags and they're filthy, but I've got these white robes made of linen, and you're going to wear them. You know, one of the major metaphors for what it means to be a Christian is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61, 10 Isaiah says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. See, you can come as you are to the feast. You can't come on your own terms. You only come on his terms. And his terms are, you are in sin by yourself. You need a covering. But this is what makes God amazing. What he demands of us, righteousness, he supplies for us with his son. You need to be righteous? Y'all ain't gonna ever find that. You don't have it in yourself. Your sin is too deep. I have a solution. I'm gonna send my son. He's gonna take your sin. He's gonna take it on himself so that he can give you his righteousness and you can put it on yourself. To enter the feast, you gotta accept the covering the king has provided. And I think what Jesus is warning against here are the people who are like, sure, I wanna go to the feast. I don't wanna face destruction and fire. Well, you can come, you really can. But you can't come and act like you're still in charge of the universe. You can't come and still think you're okay. Humility is the only way you get in the door. And if you have that humility, if God reveals your sin and brings that conviction, Man, and you, you take that robe on, you can, have, you can have such certainty that you're going to be in the feast, which is good news. And I would say, I don't know how people make it through this world day in and day out without that kind of certainty. I mean, the Bible makes it clear that we can be assured of our salvation, our place in the feast, the way you're assured. Do you, have you accepted the righteousness of Christ? Have you repented of your sin? And do you have some fruit in your life? Not do you have all the fruit in your life that you would like, but do you have something you can point to and say, yeah, I wouldn't have done that without Jesus. If you have those things, you can be sure you're on the guest list. And so if you don't have those things, I want to put the call before you. Today is the day of salvation. The invitation goes out. You can come as you are. You don't have to fix everything, but you can only come through Jesus. He's the only one offering you the righteousness you need to get into the wedding. If you're here and you are a Christian, there's a big call for you here too. And that call is we should be a people who know how to feast, both figuratively and literally that our lives shouldn't be marked by dour faces and kind of this weird utilitarianism that infected the church about 100 years ago. Where it's like, we're just gonna do these things. No, God, God's the Lord of the feast. And as parents, we should teach our kids that, yes, yeah, sin is bad, but something's better than sin. You know, it's the Lord of the feast. It's not just avoiding hell. If we understand the feast, it should make us be a people who go out into our neighborhood and our workplace and say, hey, y'all, I know about this feast that's coming. And I really want you there. And even more, it should lead us to be a people who can face life with an unshakable confidence because we know how everything ends. 
I was watching a movie not too long ago. It's a Western. And there was this character who was, he's kind of a strange character. Uh, but he, he was absolutely fearless. And he would walk into the most dangerous of situations. And he wouldn't shake, he wouldn't flinch or anything. And people would say, how could you just do that? And he said, well, I've seen my death. He claimed to have had a vision about his death. And he's like, I've seen my death. I'm not afraid. This isn't how I go. I was watching that and I was thinking, you know what? Jesus has given us a window into our end and our end's a beginning and it's better than anything. Like what kind of confidence would we have if we just believed a sliver of this functionally? What if we were able to walk around and say, you know what? I know how it ends. I know this is really hard right now. But man, if you've got a feast on the calendar, you can go through a lot to make it to the feast. And you can go through a lot with joy. But we forget. And Jesus knew we were going to forget. And so on the night of his betrayal, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the cup of my blood poured out for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And what Jesus did for the church, it's really kind of interesting when you think about it. He said, I'm going to give you a simulated feast. And every time you get together, I want you to take part in this simulated feast with just a little bread and a little wine to remind you of what I've done and what I'm coming back to do. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this feast until you take part in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you are a Christian, I encourage you to come to the table and remember your sins have been atoned for. You've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he's promised to prepare a place for us at the table. We can look forward to that with hope and with confidence. May that lift up the hearts and the minds of those of you who are struggling and discouraged. May it convict those of you who are caught in sin. And maybe for the people who are just so worn out, may that give you something to help you sustain on for the next week. Let me pray.